A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds are we healed. Welcome to Three Crosses this afternoon. My name is Danny Strange, and I serve as senior pastor here at the church. And today we gather, in a sense, to remember the life and mourn the death of our Savior and King, Jesus of Nazareth. As believers in Christ, we know that Sunday is coming. And yet it's beautiful for us to take a moment and pause and recognize the gravity of the death he bore on our behalf on the Friday we call good. This afternoon, as we walk through this service, let me encourage you to, to treat this like you are at a memorial service and to bring the gravity of that occasion with you. You'll hear some stories this afternoon talking about the life of Jesus, the words of Jesus. You'll hear some, some readings. You'll see some art that will draw you in into worship. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul who says that we mourn, those of us who understand resurrection, we mourn, but not as those without hope. And so today, though Easter is coming, we we mourn, and yet we mourn a little bit differently, obviously, because we know that three days later, we'll be back here to celebrate again. This afternoon, if you did bring financial gifts, uh, we would invite you to give them in the lobby. We've got those offering pillars out there on your way out today. But let me open us up in prayer as we step into our service this afternoon. Let's pray together. Father, we pause in the midst of our week to remember. We think of the communion meal that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, breaking it, gave it to his disciples and said, eat this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is for you. He took the cup, said, drink this in remembrance of me. Today we gather to remember Jesus. We pray that as we hear these moments and vignettes from the life and words of Jesus, that we would be drawn into worship, that there'd be gravity in these moments and that you would use this moment today, even as we're at this point in the Holy Week, as we walk with Jesus through the last week he spent on earth before his resurrection and then ascension 40 days later, we pray that you would use this day to remind us the significance of the death of our God and King Jesus. And we pray that you would use that to make Sunday even more beautiful and celebratory and special for us who are in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I a stone and not a sheep? 
that I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross, to number drop by drop thy blood's slow loss and yet not weep? Not so those women loved who with exceeding grief lamented thee. Not so fallen Peter weeping bitterly. Not so the thief was moved. Not so the sun and moon which hid their faces in a starless sky. A horror of great darkness at broad noon. I, only I, yet give not or but seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock, greater than Moses, Turn to look once more and smite a rock. The poem Good Friday by Christina Rossetti. Would you join me as we sing Beneath the Cross of Jesus? words on the back of the program and will be on the screen as well. Beneath the cross of Jesus I find a place to stand and wonder at such mercy that calls me as I am. And wonder, discard me, old moons which tell me come beneath the cross of Jesus. My unworthy soul is one. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears to wonders I confess the wonders of his glorious love and my own unworthiness. Beneath the cross of Jesus, the path before the crown, we follow in his footsteps where promised hope is found. How great the day for us to be his perfect bride beneath the cross of Jesus. We will gladly live our lives. Luke 23 says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him 
and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to, to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. As I was studying this, I was just reminded of forgiveness, obviously. Forgiveness of just my brother, just coming up, growing up with him. Forgiveness with my teammates, forgiveness with my family, forgiveness of just people who have done something wrong. And I know we all come to the point in our life where we have to say that crazy phrase after someone has wronged us, I forgive you. And as literally the, one of the hardest things I think we can face as someone has wronged us, we want all of the revenge. We want all of what we can get back or get even or get really the hatred even with us in our heart. And we say, are forced to say, I forgive you and then let it go? As scripture says, forgiveness is just letting it go or sending it away. Never thinking of it again. And now growing up with my family, little ones of my own, and teaching them forgiveness, oh my, they literally have no idea what they're doing. And showing them every step of the way where they will literally say, I don't want to. And for us, as we grow older, we kind of keep that to ourselves and we want that someone to get back to us, someone to say, I am sorry and feeling that revenge, feeling that vengeance that we're like, yes, you are sorry. And then say, now I forgive you. And now we come to Jesus' moment where he's literally been beaten, broken, betrayed by his best friends, lied, illegally tried, and now is hanging in front of all these murderers, these people, the world. And the first thing he says is, dad, Forgive them. And it makes me think that forgiveness in Jesus' mindset, in a kingdom mindset, that forgiveness is not something that we earn, but it is for giving. It's not something that we earn, something that we get or say, yes, it's mine, but instead we give it. And Jesus, with that mindset of just saying, Lord, I know they have turned from me. I know that they have made mistake after mistake after mistake. And I know we've been there. And in our lives today, we've had so many people take advantage of us, hurt us, whether that was financially, whether that was with some crazy debt that we owe, or maybe someone's let it go and we didn't even show them that, wow, thank you moment. But there's been so many times where we want to get back and have that person come to us so that we can have that I forgive you moment because you earned it. But Jesus says it straight up. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. 
And we have to be careful with that. As we just take that hatred, as we take that punishment, as we take that fighting and betrayal and everything that we face in our life, whether that was through our marriage or wherever, with our kids, with our church, we need to say, you're forgiven. I forgive you. And I know the enemy is like a, li- is a lion, prowling around, loving every single moment that we take our sin and put it on ourselves and crush ourselves, really, and he loves every moment of that. But we have a savior who is ferocious, but shows us forgiveness. And so this morning, this day, I pray and I hope you know that we have a God who shows us that it's, forgiveness is not something that we earn, but it's something that we give. And in this broken world, let us show this amazing love in the darkest places.
Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Those words take me back to who I am and whose I am. I think you take a little journey with me, you'll get there with me. We're on a hill, there's three crosses. It's not this hill. The crowd is not this quiet. You heard Austin describe them. It's noisy, they're jeering, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're crying. It's hot. You smell the fear. There are people on those crosses. It is not a, a cool, calm, collected place. There is blood in the water. You know you're not Jesus in this story. Everyone knows they're not speaking things into motion, levitating on water. That dirty shower water comes out and you start lifting your legs like every other human. But are you one of the criminals? Are you the taunting criminal? Bad. Knew he was being justly punished. On his cross, taunting Jesus, the son of man, God in human form, actually saying, prove it if you are. Show me. Are we doing that? Are we asking Jesus to prove himself to us? Grant my miracle in my time? Jesus, just give me this now, and then I'll love you, I'll claim you, I'll own you. Maybe we're the other criminal. He's equally as bad. He's dirty. He's up there owning his punishment, though, owning his sin. That's what's different about him. I think most of us in this rule can fit with him. We can feel him. He knows there's something different. So he's up there on his cross, actually telling the taunter to be quiet, to hush. And he does what we've done when we come to the end of ourselves. We say, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. 
And Jesus does what only Jesus can do and says those words, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise today. Those words. Now maybe you're still in the crowd. You don't feel yourself in this story yet. I totally get that. For 50 years of my life, I was in the crowd. I thought all I needed to be was a good person. I'm a sinner? What's that mean? I'm better than fill in the blank. But on the day I had my encounter with Jesus, when I met him in the restaurant doing my homework, table for one, please, oblivious to everyone else in that place until the waiter was tapping me on my arm saying, ma'am, are you okay? And I came to with tears running down my face. That's when Jesus became real to me. That's when the promise in those words that I could be with him in paradise became real. And maybe today is that day for you. Where two or more are gathered in his name, he is present. So he is here with us today, waiting to say to you, today is your day. It's a good Friday morning day, but it could be your day. He has a name, you know. Not that anyone in that blood-hungry crowd care, but his name is Dismas. I named him after my father, and when he was born, my father said to me, daughter, teach him of God, of justice and mercy and humility. And I did. He was a good boy, always looking out for the underdog. He could never stand to see anyone being bullied. Many times I told him, Dismas, you have to learn to control your temper. And he always said the same thing. Remember, Mama, Proverbs says, speak up for the people who have no voice, for the rights of all the down and outers. It was hard to argue with that. As Rome tightened their grip on our region, Dismas became more of a rebel. He let his anger get the best of him, and he turned from kindness and compassion to violence and retribution. Last week, it caught up with him. The neighbor boy came running to tell me Dismas had been arrested and was going on trial. I rushed to the prefect's court, arriving just in time to hear the verdict, guilty of treason against the Roman government. I fell on my knees before Pilate and begged for mercy, but it did no good. Dismas was sentenced to be crucified. This morning at Golgotha, my son carried his cross past me. Through tears, I told him I loved him, and he told me he loved me. Then he said, remember, Mama, speak up for the voiceless. I turned away as they carried out his sentence, but I couldn't leave. Later, I looked at the scene on that hillside. The man on the middle cross had been badly beaten. And the man to his left was yelling vile insults at him. My son, my dismiss, even as he hung there in agony, spoke up. 
Can't you see this man is innocent? My compassionate boy denied mercy himself, still found the strength to call for mercy for another. He turned to the man in the middle and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The man on the middle cross, bloody, bruised, and struggling for every breath, turned his face toward my son. With great difficulty, he spoke, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know much about that man on the middle cross, but it seems Dismas did. I want to believe he has the power to deliver my son into paradise and maybe to deliver me there as well. No, I don't want to believe. I do believe. Savior, remember me. Thank you, Janice kind of makes you emotional as you see each one of these uh, elements of the, of the Good Friday service uh, to think of all that Jesus did for us. Just picture in your mind what I am going to read to you right now. Try to get that picture, and that will prepare us for this uh, word number three. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, and the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the, the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Do you realize that this particular word is the one word that could have been said at any time? It could have been said before Jesus was on the cross, or it could have been said after the resurrection. You know, Jesus could have said to John, well, John, um, I'm going to be dying tomorrow, and, and I'm going to go back to be with my father, so I need someone to watch over my mother. Could, could you take care of that for me? Or maybe after the resurrection, he could say, you can see, John, that I, uh, and everyone, that I have risen again. I need someone to watch out for my mom. Could you take care of it? But this particular word, uttered from the cross, had a reason behind it, a purpose behind it, to touch us not only for that moment, but for all eternity. Jesus had gone through a great deal. He had been whipped and mocked and spit at and pummeled with the fists of the, of the guards. He had been forced to carry his own cross and was uh, sweating profusely, of course, and dehydrated as he went up that that. Uh, hill he had been planted on the or placed on the cross and planted in the ground and he hurt a great deal but the mental anguish was even worse than the physical anguish he had been separated from his father for the first time your sins and my sins on him kept him from any kind of a relationship with his father at the time in fact 
It says in Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you realize that your sins and my sins were on him? So we have the physical and the, the mental anguish of it all. Nevertheless, he looks at Mary and says, this is your son. Adopt this one. He will take care of you. Do you realize what, what Jesus is saying? He cares so much. It says that we're to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. That's what he's saying to Mary. And that's what he's saying to all of us. That's why he uttered that on the cross. Because he really cares. He cares about the fact that you lost your cell phone. Or that you're going through a, a big interview at work. Or that there's difficulty financially or, or physically or relationally in your life. God cares. And that's what he was showing in his relationship to Mary. But he was also showing his, the responsibility that we need to have for one another. As he spoke to John as he said, uh, behold your mother. John was going to take on that responsibility. Uh, none of, of Jesus' physical brother or his other brothers would, would take that responsibility. John was closest to him because he was a follower of his. You remember when, when Mary and the other brothers came that time to, to get Jesus out of there and someone said, your mother and brothers are here. And he said, well, who are? Who is my mother and my brothers? It is those that are following me. And that's what John was. He was a follower. He was in that in group. He was close to the Lord. Now, John wasn't perfect. We know that he is one of those who wanted to sit right next to Jesus in the, in the kingdom. But John was the one chosen to be the Lord's uh, vehicle for showing love to, the, to his mother. Do you, you get that? And that's what God calls us to do. He wants us to be his, his uh, physical vehicle by which love will be shown. See, I have a little funnel. You see the funnel? Can you see it up here? He wants us to be his, what? His funnel of love. You got that? See, his funnel of love. That's, that's what John was. John was, was really three things. He was accessible. He was right there. He hadn't run away. He hadn't hidden. He was accessible. He was available. He would do the work. And then finally, it says that from that time on, this disciple took Mary into his house. He was accommodating. He did what the Lord wanted him to do. That's what God challenges us with today, to be accessible, available, and accommodating. I walked with him through the crowds. Hundreds of people pressing in from every side. Everyone wanted to be with Jesus. But there's no way he could see them all. But still, he could feel their hurts and their needs. And so many times he'd stop right there in the midst of the crowd and minister to the individual. We were always trying to rush him along. We thought we were protecting him. 
but we just didn't understand. What will I remember of this day? Seeing him hanging on the cross, the suffering he went through, I can't even begin to describe it. Then came that same voice that called me to follow him. Not as strong, but just as clear. First to his mother and then to me. He said, woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Even in his darkest hour, he reminds us that we're not meant to be alone. He reminds us of our need for each other. We're meant to be together. Depending upon each other's strengths, working together for his purpose. Matthew 27, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, my God. This is the phrase that Jesus use, uses here, and this is a phrase we often use in everyday life, whether it's out of habit or out of excitement or frustration. We say this phrase, oh my God, or a version of it, when our kids leave a mess of the house. We say this phrase when we have that first bite of that delicious piece of chocolate that we were waiting for all night. And we understandably use this phrase when we hear the news that a loved one has been diagnosed with cancer. We understandably say this when a friend or a family member or even a, a spouse tells us we're getting a divorce. And this phrase of saying God's name, of desperation, out of a need for saving, out of a need for help, we are not the only ones that feel this. But Jesus, he uses these particular last words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the ancient song written by King David in Psalm 22. And maybe we have asked the same question. Maybe you know someone that is going through a hardship that has asked the same question. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Why do I feel alone? And one of the worst experiences we can ever go through in this life is feeling rejected or forsaken by someone we love. And we experience this thing when we, we, when we go through this feeling of rejection or being forsaken. We often, we often don't know how to explain it, but we know that the ripples of sin cause the separation. And when we feel the separation between us and God, the separation between us and other people, and even the separation within ourselves, 
this rejection that we're feeling is the ripple effect of sin. That sin is not just something bad that you choose to do or this bad thing you're not supposed to do, but sin ruins the way things were meant to be. And in our relationship with God, we feel the separation. And this is why we and Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the beautiful thing, even as Jesus says these words, even as he's dying on a cross. The beautiful thing is this, that Jesus died so that sin would no longer separate us from God. That Jesus When he died, I love these words that Butch read and that the Apostle Paul writes in this letter, that God made Jesus, who committed no sin, to be sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God, that we would be in right relationship with God, that Jesus felt this separation from his Father so that you and I would feel accepted. So you and I would experience forgiveness. That so you and I would be connected with God. Because Jesus took the separation of our sin on himself. So this is why Jesus' last words are tragedy. But it is also a beautiful statement when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I fought the fight, prepared for royalty, stirred the crowds with rebel might, awaiting prophecy. Now my heart feels chained inside, for fear he is the one. Was I blinded by determined pride? Could he be your son? My God, my God, have you forsaken him? Have we mistaken him? Is he the king? Here at the cross Where he died in my place Have I come face to face With heaven's king All this time I've turned away I didn't want to see The truth of the price he paid So my life would be free As the sword pierced through his side His light pierced through my heart Forgive me, Son of God, I cried I know now who you are My God 
can be have I forsaken thee he's the king here at the cross where he died in my place have I come face to face with heaven's king the power of his love has freed me from the depths of sin I would die I would die I would die for him Jesus said, I am thirsty. And would you agree with me that everything that comes out of Jesus' mouth is important? I would, I would agree with that. But I am thirsty. What's important about that? There's so many other things Jesus said on the cross, and you can easily 
figure out why they're important and theologically where they are, but what about I am thirsty? Well, Jesus actually, in that text from John 19, it said, later Jesus, knowing that all things were complete, and so that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. There are scriptures that are called the Messianic Psalms, and these are psalms which depict the suffering of Christ. Uh, One of them is from Psalm 22, describing this scene which you just saw played out before you. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaw and you have brought me into the dust of death. Psalm 69 says, they gave me also gall for my meat and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Jesus in the last moments of his life was fulfilling scripture even at that moment. Well, so I thirst. What's the point? The point is this, that there are two things about Christ you cannot separate. And if you do, you end up in error. One is that Jesus is fully God, and the other is that he is fully human. For years, the church has struggled with on one side of that equation or the other, somebody's falsely taught that Jesus is God, but he wasn't a man. He was merely a spirit. Or he was a man, and he wasn't God. How many of you know the musical Jesus Christ Superstar? The whole point of that movie, the whole point of that play, is to prove that Jesus was not God. He was merely a man. As Mary Magdalene said, he's just a man, and I've had so many men before. He's just a man. He's just one more. Well, he's not that. He's fully God, and he's fully man. Uh, John says this, the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. He would write later, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, we've seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, they touched him, of the word of life. As a human, Jesus felt hunger, he felt pain, he was tempted and felt every emotion that you and I feel. He had all of the human senses. And we find that Jesus was tired, and he slept, and He was thirsty. These are all evidences of his humanity. Angels don't thirst. Spirits don't thirst. God does not thirst. Only humans thirst. So why is it important that Jesus was a man? Why is it important that Jesus was human? You know what it says in Romans? Really clearly. It teaches us in several places that by one man, sin entered into this world. Who was that man? And by one man, sin was taken away. Who's that man? You have to have that. It says, it reads like this. For if by the trespass of one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign through life through one man, Jesus Christ? Now, here's another point I want to get really across to you today. If you don't leave with anything else, leave with this. Nobody understands your suffering like Jesus. Amen? And I mean nobody. Your mother doesn't. Your best friend doesn't, your kids don't, your parents don't. Nobody understands your suffering the way that Jesus does. It says in Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. No matter how despondent you may be today, how rugged your path, how sad your lot in life, You can spread it all out before the Lord Jesus and he will take it all in. 
Cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. Is your body racked with pain? Did you see what was on the screen just a minute ago? So was his. Are you misunderstood, misjudged, mischaracterized? So was he. Those who are nearest and dearest to you, have they turned away? They don't understand you? They did from him. His own family accused him of being crazy. Are you in darkness? So was he for three hours. And Hebrews again says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now about suffering in general. You know, suffering always has a point. If you're suffering here today, God did not bring you to that situation just randomly. Jesus' suffering, was it random? No. It was for a purpose. Suffering has a purpose. Later, Jesus, knowing all things were complete, and so the scripture could be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. Physical and spiritual suffering that Jesus endured was all a part of God's plan. Same way with you. God has a purpose for your pain. I'm going to tell you a story about a lady named Elizabeth Prentice. You know a little bit about her, even though you don't know that you know something about her. She grew up in a lot of pain, had physical ailments uh, every day of her life struggled with agonizing pain, yet that didn't stop her from marrying and having children. Two of her children, though, suddenly were taken away. They died. And this was beyond what she could bear. Elizabeth and her husband lost their children, and she desponded of life in general. For weeks, nobody could console her. In her diary, she wrote of an empty hand, worn out, exhausted body, and longing to be free from this world, which has so many horrible experiences. But it was during this time that she cast her cares on Christ. She went to the Lord. She called out to God and said to him, please minister to my broken spirit. And it was at this time, Elizabeth's pain brought about something positive. She wrote this, which you know today as a hymn. See if you recognize these words from her writings. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. Now you know that hymn. You've sung it probably many times. But that came out of her pain. You see, her pain, your pain, has a purpose. Jesus' pain had a purpose. Something good is going to come from your suffering as you follow the Lord. As Scripture says, all things work together for good to those who are the called, to those who are there for God's purposes. Now, Dr. Philip Yancey, in his book called In His Image, wrote this. Our prayers and cries of suffering take on a greater meaning because we know them to be understood by God. Instinctively, we want a God who not only knows about our pain, but shares in it and is affected by it. Does God care about your pain today? Yes, he does. And I leave you with this. Whatever suffering you need to take to Jesus today, just remember this. He thirsted so you don't have to. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19.30 When I read something like this, my mind starts to wonder, what was going through the Lord's head when he said that? 
Was it really necessary? According to the Gospels, to the other Gospels, when he said this, it was more like a shout. And when you're trying, when you're dying, hanging from a cross, and you're dying of asphyxiation, the last thing that you want to do is release the little to no air that you have within you. But Jesus wanted to say this. There are a lot of scholars that give different interpretation of this uh, uh, sixth word. Um, some believe that he was declaring that, uh, that all the prophecies from the Old Testament that had to do with the suffering Messiah were fulfilled like Isaiah, Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. Others believe that uh, he was putting an end to all the ceremonial practices that the law required. Some others believe that he was saying that his physical suffering was over. But the one interpretation that moves my heart is the one that states that he was finishing with the redemption plan that God put together for us from eternity past. This plan has God the Son come into human form and live a perfect life that none of us could, fulfilling the perfect law of God and going to a cross as an innocent and perfect sacrifice. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteousness, to bring you, to bring you and bring me to God, according to Peter uh, 3.18. In the cross that the Romans perfected for physical suffering, he had to suffer even more. In the time that he was hanging from that cross, the suffering of the Lord was multiplied by the wrath of God over him. Whatever we deserve for our sins was put on Jesus. While he was suffering on the cross so that justice was served. The payment for all our sins. And when the wrath of God was satisfied, he shouted, It is finished. As a victory proclamation that made Satan, death, and sin tremble. The glorious cross of our Lord. He wanted to say, it is finished. To let the universe know that he did it all. Then there was nothing more to add to that. Then nothing more was required. That justice was satisfied. That the Lord of the universe did it all for love. Did it all for you. Then he bowed his head after being punished instead of me, instead of you. And finally, he had a moment of rest. He reclined his head in an act of rest as if he was lying on the lap of the Father who close and tender showed him his love and gave him strength. And both together say, it is finished for love. Tetelestai. Immediately before breathing his, his last breath, Jesus cried loudly out one final word on the cross, Tetelestai. One word with a critical meaning. It is finished. It is completed, brought to an end, accomplished with finality. After Satan had shamed, beaten, mocked, tortured, and crucified the Son of God. As the devil celebrated because he had done his worst. Jesus didn't just whisper out a meager resolution, I'm finished. Exhausted, giving up, surrendering to death and the enemy. Oh no. He declared for all eternity, it 
is finished. The law was made perfect. Jesus had obeyed his father's will. It is finished. God's righteousness had collided with God's perfect will for grace and love. Justice had been satisfied. Reconciliation between a flawed humanity and a holy God was made possible. It is finished. The Son allowed people to finally see a glimpse of the Father. He brought light to the nations. It is finished. The messianic prophecies had been fulfilled. The veil has been torn. The Old Testament sacrificial system was now obsolete. Jesus Christ became the blameless sacrifice for every sin. Once and for all, the debt was paid in full. Now and for always. It is finished. There is nothing more for you and I to add. Your good works are insufficient to appease a holy God. Turning over a new leaf will get you nothing eternal. Your striving for perfection will never be good enough to improve upon what Jesus has already done. It is finished. Your poverty nor your prosperity will earn you reconciliation with God. You cannot give enough acquire enough or deprive yourself enough to profit God's favor. And you will never be able to attend enough religious gatherings to add anything to the completed work on the cross. Your performance, your talent, your intellect are all deficient for salvation. It is finished. An extra special word or understanding is not needed. You do not need a new revelation from a preacher, a prophet, a teacher, book, blog, friend, or even yourself. It is finished. Anything you try to add to his completed work in order to be made right with God is impotent. Perhaps even insulting. And actually, heretical. It is finished. So what does one do when the work of salvation is complete? Believe and repent. Rest. Worship and give thanks. Rejoice and share. Believe that Jesus is Lord and has fully paid for your debt of salvation. Repent from your belief in your own self-sufficiency and follow Jesus exclusively. It is finished. Rest. Quit striving for God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness. The work is done. Accept it. Rest in it and live every day in the gospel. Worship and give thanks. Give him the glory that he is due. Express gratitude for his mercy and grace. It, it is, is finished. finished. Our Lord's final word from the cross, from Luke 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that the passion of his life was to become like Jesus in his death. The final saying from our Lord on the cross gives us a glimpse of how to do this, how to become like him even in death. Even in death, Jesus is teaching us. And I believe that it is God's will that we learn from Jesus how to die. It's a perversion of the gospel to say that because Jesus suffered, I don't have to suffer. I can be comfortable and prosperous. It's not the gospel to say that he became homeless so that we could live in the finest of houses. He was rejected that we might be admired by people. He lived in poverty that we might live in luxury. 
he endured suffering that we might enjoy ease. Jesus taught just the opposite. If any man would come after me, he said, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. So just as the life of Jesus taught us how to live, so in his own death, he teaches us how to die. Our Lord's final words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These words demonstrate our Lord's attitude, his purpose in life, was not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, as he said in John 6, 38. That's surrender. That was his attitude in life. And in death, the sentiment is the same. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That too is surrender. Today, as we contemplate the death of Jesus, we would do well to contemplate our own death as well, and to do so with this attitude of surrender. We all think about it. How will we die? When will we die? What will it feel like when we die? We need to think those thoughts with this attitude of Jesus, an attitude of surrender. Let me quickly share four things that we can remember as we face the ultimate reality of life that will come to each and every one of us. Our own death. First of all, in death, we can remember that God reigns. God is sovereign. When, when there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, who made that happen? Who saw to it that the sun's light faded? Who ripped the temple's curtain in two from top to bottom? Over and around the death of Jesus Christ is the sovereign hand of God. He had not slipped up somewhere. He had not been caught off guard. He was not quickly trying to put plan B in action. No. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, Luke comments about those who sent Jesus to the cross by saying they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It was God's sovereign hand. It was God's sovereign reign that led Jesus to the cross. So as we contemplate our own death we remember that God reigns, both in life and in death. So when you and I come to die, remember God's reign, and nothing has slipped between his fingers, no matter how it happens, no matter when it happens. God is sovereign. Secondly, as we contemplate our own death, we remember that God has compassion. I like how Miguel pictured Jesus in the embrace of his father when he was on the cross. Though God sovereignly rules and he reigns in both life and death, he also feels compassion. 
Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 tell us, As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. To Jesus, the flogging, the crown of thorns, the nails, they didn't feel like compassion. To us, neither do intravenous needles or respirators or hand restraints or tubes down our throat. The nails and the thorns that pierced the body of our Savior were the result of sin and the suffering that we endure in life and in death is also the result of sin. But the truth remains, in spite of that, in spite of the suffering, God is a God of compassion. So much so, as we saw on the video, he not only enters into our suffering, but he himself suffered. We need to remember as we approach life's ultimate experience that God reigns, that he knows, and that he feels. He feels compassion toward his children when we suffer. Thirdly, in death, we remember that our spirit lives on. When we come to die, remember that we have a spirit that will live on. It's been said, we're not a body that has a spirit. We're a spirit that has a body. As Jesus died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus knew, and we should also know and remember, that physical death for God's people is not the end. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And in Philippians 1, verse 23, he said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. How about you? Do you resonate with those words? I do. Better by far. But guess what? We have to die to get there. Unless we're the lucky ones who are still alive when Jesus comes back again. But we should expect to die like him. We should remember that like him, we have a spirit that at the moment of physical death does not die, but lives on with God. God reigns. God has compassion. And our spirit lives on after physical death. And then finally, as we face our own death, we remember that God's hands are open to us. As I was preparing for this little talk, I was thinking about what Jesus might have been remembering as he was hanging on that cross. I wondered if his mind went back to when he was in the garden and he prayed passionately that the cup of suffering would be taken away from him. I wondered if in his humanity, 
He might have been concerned about that prayer as he reflected on it from the cross, feeling perhaps badly that he had prayed it in that way. I also wondered if on the cross, he reflected on his desperate cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his humanity, I wondered if if he regretted having prayed those words of anguish. I don't know. But what I do know is that as we are told, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. He experienced anguish and suffering to the nth degree. And from this, I take some kind of strange consolation as I remember that God's arms are open and his hands are extended to his dying children. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not into the grave I commit my spirit. Not into the void I commit my spirit. Not into the dark unknown. No, rather, into your hands I commit my spirit, Father. One of the great temptations at the hour of death is to believe that our death is a horrible blow from God and that therefore we cannot commit our spirits to him because we believe that we are under his wrath and that's why we're dying in this way. That's a mistake. God reigns. God is compassionate. There is more and his hands are open. Jesus' death was a blow from God. He became a curse for us. But Jesus, in that hour, did not abandon his own faith in his Father. And we, because he bore our sin, we can have assurance in a spirit of surrender when we die. Jesus' example of suffering, and ultimately even death, was an example of surrender. Knowing that God reigns, knowing that God has compassion, knowing that our spirit lives on even after death, and knowing that God's hands are open to us. In his death, knowing these things, Jesus could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Surrender, even in death, we can surrender to our Father. This, my friends, is the good news. Amen.
Would you please stand and join me as we sing our final song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the centerpiece of the passage we read as we opened this afternoon in Isaiah 55 is that we all like sheep have gone astray and yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The death of Christ like Isaiah 55 tells us is the seeming death of a, of a man just like us and yet we put him there And his death was for us on our behalf to bring us forgiveness and mercy and grace and life. The Apostle Peter shared with the Jewish community after the resurrection about what God did through Jesus. He said it this way, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. And to them, the the death of Christ was a a huge weight and guilt that God had exalted him now to the highest place, and they cried out, well, what should we do? 
And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Turn from your sin and experience forgiveness and cleanliness. This afternoon, if you're feeling the weight of the sin that you committed, that held him there until God's will was accomplished on Good Friday, turn, experience forgiveness and cleansing from the Lord as you receive mercy as Christ paid for your sin on that day. As we go this afternoon, let me leave you with a benediction as we step from here into a long Saturday and await Easter on Sunday. May the weight and guilt and heaviness of the crucifixion abide with you. May you mourn this evening. May Saturday be long and heavy. And may Sunday be magnificent. Go in peace.